Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. The World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, takes place in a very expensive Swiss ski resort. But it's basically just a high-end convention. Lots of very wealthy people, lots of very sophisticated people, and all of them are there to solve the world's problems. Here's the family in the TV show Succession, attending a version of it. Might have just touched Bill Gates. Hey, did you check out the acoustics uh, on my room for my talk? And did you get me on the culture hike? And what did I what did I get in my chalet? Did I get the nut and fruit box or the uh, champagne and paperweight? Davos is quite the status contest. And Andrew Ross Sorkin, the star business reporter at the New York Times, told me there's another weird thing about it. At Davos, there is a bit of a caste system. It's actually embedded in the badges that people wear. You've probably seen Sorkin on CNBC. He's much more suave than the average journalist. He's a kind of charismatic guy who's comfortable in any social situation. Everybody wants what's called a white badge. And if you are a, quote, participant, meaning you are an invited participant, you would have a white badge with a blue line under it. If you are the spouse, you have a white badge with no blue line. And I've gone, by the way, with my wife, and she will tell you, and it is 100% true, that people both gravitate towards other people who have the blue line on their white badge and may not gravitate towards the people that have the white badge without the blue line. It, it sort of sets up a complicated, and I'm putting that politely, <laughs> situation <laughs> for everybody. Like a lot of women at Davos, a woman named Anne Wojcicki wore the spouse badge. Now, Anne is a striking figure. She's compact, intense, pretty, the sort of person you want to talk to. But she had a white badge? Never mind. At events like this, Anne was a nobody. Anne's spouse, on the other hand, he was a really big deal. A glimpse inside the billionaire lifestyle of Sergey Brin. Brin is one of the world's most successful business magnets. Without further ado, Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google. Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, one of the richest men in the world, even, you could say, a one-name guy. Madonna, Shakira, Elon, Sergey. But Anne would return to Davos, and this time, everything would be different. Because she was about to start her own game-changing company, 23andMe. And that meant Anne would change her badge 
and eventually change her spouse. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Vanessa Grigoriadis, and this is Infamous. You're listening to episode one of our two-part series, Good Genes. For the last 20 years or so, founders have been obsessed with finding ways for tech to solve humanity's problems. It's a savior and a god complex, all rolled into one capitalist mission. You could say it's part of embracing the private sector to solve state issues. But regardless, these billionaires are brimming with these grand plans they believe are going to save the world. Never mind if the ideas are totally imperialistic or unrealistic or just plain stupid. Obviously, Google is one of the most important tech companies out there. But we'll be talking later about one of Sergey's ideas that was much, much smaller. A pair of glasses that acted like your phone. In other words, you wore your phone on your face. Not exactly solving world hunger. And it had the side effect of embarrassing Sergey. But before we get to all that, let's start back at the beginning, on slippery ground. Ice, to be exact. At 14, Anne Wojcicki fell in love with ice skating. She would glide across the ice, circling the oval rink over and over. Ice skating is a beautiful sport, both elastic and graceful, the closest humans can get to flying. Balancing, though, on those thin blades isn't easy to master. It takes dedication and practice. Now, Anne lived in Northern California, which is not a place where ponds freeze over. Most girls her age were busy playing outdoor sports, like tennis or golf. But Anne loved the ice. Here she is, talking about it on a podcast for The Skim. I was kind of famous for always sneaking into the rink because I didn't have the entrance fee. And so to buy my ice skates, I used to try to win the skate-a-thon every year because the top prize was a new pair of skates. My parents hated my ice skating. Anne's parents were so against her ice skating, according to Anne, that she had to get super stubborn and pay for everything herself from her babysitting funds. But the rest of her childhood was pretty dreamy. She grew up in a house in the center of Palo Alto. Her dad was chairman of the physics department at Stanford. Her mom was a journalism professor, an author. And her older sisters both left for Ivy League colleges before she had even started high school. I'm impressed by the whole family. They're sort of like the Emanuel family. I mean, each of the daughters has had this remarkable success. I was surrounded by very eccentric people who want to challenge gravity and redefine whole political infrastructures. Like, it's okay to be sort of unusual. And also to pursue what you're interested in. Anne sounds like the classic youngest sibling. Charming, driven, a little rebellious. Ice skating around that rink, wearing skates she'd scored for free and lessons she traded for babysitting. She may have felt independent and free. You know, I think that there's something about opposition 
like as a rebellious teenager, like parents should in some ways encourage their kids to rebel a bit and forces their passion. I want to make clear, Anne commented only on a few professional topics for this podcast, no personal ones, and Sergey did not comment. The voices you're hearing are archival tape. In any case, while Anne was on the ice, Sergey Brin was a new kid struggling to assimilate. As a child, I, I was, you know, I had an accent. I came to the U.S. at the age of six, and uh, um, so I was teased and stuff in elementary school. He was brainy, slight unibrow, very earnest. He grew up in Moscow, which explains his Russian accent. I don't regard myself as being really popular going through school. That was never that important to me, and I always had friends. Sergei graduated college early, made his way to Stanford for graduate school. He studied computer science, which is how he met his friend, Larry Page. Together, they started a computer company out of a garage, a garage rented to them by Anne's sister, Susan. Houses are really expensive in Silicon Valley, and I was a student, and so I wanted someone to help me pay the mortgage. They were looking for space, and, um, you know, there were just the two of them, and they had one employee, so... They just moved in. Which is how Anne met Sergey. Again, a lot of Anne's POV here is from my research and reporting separate from Anne. We'd be doing dishes and we could see Sergey and Larry coding in like the other bedroom. And I used to always say, I was like, it's really weird that you have these guys like just sitting in the other room coding while we're doing dishes. They used to have this whiteboard that said Google Worldwide Headquarters. And um, my other sister used to love to go in and erase it. We kind of like to torture them and they like to torture us. He was cute with curly hair, mischievous smile. They started dating in this sort of nerdy way. Sometimes Sergey would leave Anne voicemails in Morse code or notes about where to meet him in Braille. She said at the time, it was fun. I feel like you need to balance each other in relationships. Somebody can be totally insane, and then somebody needs to buy food and pay rent. Now, Sergey was soon able to buy a lot more than food and rent. Google was exploding, and he was becoming one of the wealthiest people alive. I first started writing about it, about Twitter and Facebook and Google and YouTube and all these things when they were tiny little nothings. This is tech journalist Nick Bilton. Sergey Brin is the force behind what, what Google really became. Nick is one of the most significant tech journalists of the last 20 years. He's written three books and is just so well-sourced with a golden Rolodex. He knows a lot about the dark side of tech and social media. He even wrote and directed an HBO documentary about it. Joining us now, the writer, director, mastermind behind the fake famous social experiment, Nick Bilton. Nick's covered Google through its long rise to the tippy top. Google takes off. They leave the garage. The search engine works so well and the technology works so well that everyone starts to use it. In just a few years, Larry Page and Sergey Brin had taken Google from a programmer's passion project to the most successful dot-com in history. Here's a talk between Sergey and an Israeli politician. Google is now traded for the value of $181 billion, which is twice the yearly budget of the state of Israel. And yet, you manufacture nothing. You produce an idea. Can you define for me the idea? The idea is that 
we take the, all the world's information and make it accessible and useful to everyone. That's our mission. And that's a pretty important mission. It was such an important idea that it would change the world as we knew it. Google would become the card catalog of the internet. And Googling would become such a common word that it got its own entry in the dictionary. Ultimately, having the right information available to you can make a huge difference to your health, to your career, to your entertainment. Fast forward to uh, a decade uh, plus later, and the company's making so much money that Larry and Sergey don't even know what to do with it. Nick says you just get that sense by strolling around Google's headquarters. I've been there many times. It's like this park-like space where there's different colored bicycles and like free food and and like merry-go-rounds and and I was and people were like lounging around playing cards and hacky sack outside. And I said, "Where? Why is no one working?" And they were like, "Oh, we built a machine that just prints money, so we don't have to work unless something goes wrong." It was like a joke, but it was also real. Um, and it. It's true. Google printed so much money, in fact, that when Sergey and Anne got married in 2007, he was worth around $14 billion. They kept the location of their wedding secret, even from their guests. On the day of, everybody that was invited got on Sergey's private jet, destination unknown. Finally, they landed on a private island in the Bahamas. Anne was wearing a white swimsuit, and Sergey was wearing a black one. They swam to a nearby sandbar, stood up, and said their vows. Anne, ever the pragmatist, was excited that she didn't have to do her hair and makeup because she was swimming. And everything did seem like it was going swimmingly, at least for now. I've spoken to a lot of billionaires over my career, and they are without question more broken than the people who are still trying to make it in the world because they just have they don't know what to do with their lives and you can't spend a billion dollars it's quite almost impossible beyond spending it all on a super yacht more after the break i've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. Rocketmoney.com slash infamous. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. 
But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William vs. Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wandery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So Anne and Sergey had a relatively equitable relationship, at least as much as is possible between a billionaire tech guy and his low-profile wife. Anne may have been rebellious and makeupless, but she was also pragmatic. A source says she cut her own kid's hair because she thought it was a waste of money to do it any other way. She and Sergey were a major power couple, and she was becoming an investor. I used to invest in healthcare companies, and, you know, healthcare is a really complicated industry, and it's not necessarily always doing the right thing for the consumer. And I used to always um, complain. Like, the last hedge fund I was at was a fund that we nicknamed Death Watch. And we used to just short everything because it's really easy to predict failures in biotech, but it's hard to predict successes. And so I was like kind of just like this really negative, like everything sucks in healthcare. It's all bad. It's all failing. It's like all about like, how do I just take advantage of the consumer? And I remember Larry turning to me one day and he's like, and you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Right now you're part of the problem. Um, I was like, oh, like that's true. Like in some ways it was a good slap of like, you have to, if you, when you see problems, you need to do something to change it. Now, at the beginning of this episode, I talked about Silicon Valley as a dream factory, a place where people dream bigger than anywhere else. And now Anne had her moonshot idea. It all had to do with the human genome. Tonight, a special edition on the mapping of the human genome. Help me understand the significance of what is about to be announced. Well, I think it's definitely going to be a landmark in scientific history, maybe history in general. It's always this represents a new era in, in biology. We can start to understand the body uh, at its most important level. Back in the early 2000s, scientists finally figured out how to sequence the human genome which is basically a detailed map of all human DNA. Now, Anne had majored in biology at Yale. When the news broke, she was a healthcare analyst on Wall Street. To her, this sequencing was a major advancement, one with potentially huge market ramifications. And I remember my mom talking about DNA and getting into the gene and environment interaction. And I was obsessed. It like captivated me in a way that I just remember thinking it was like, you're born with a code and then potentially like you can mitigate your risk, like you can be at risk for something, but then it's not deterministic and I can influence my action. So I was always super interested in like, well, what is it that you can do? At the time, mapping the whole genome was expensive, difficult, available to very few. But Anne imagined that the future of gene sequencing would be accessibility, a world where everyone could map their genome at the click of a button. 
tapping into all the web 2.0 ideas like how do you actually crowdsource knowledge on health and research and if your human genome is suddenly potentially accessible and you see this passion all these people want to participate in susan g komen walks and fundraises for bone marrow transplants and everyone wants to help each other in health and i kept thinking i was like this is not a project for stanford or harvard or nih even like this is like tap into humanity wouldn't that be amazing if you could just take one test that would tell you everything about your DNA and help predict all your future health issues? It was more of a fascination than anything else. Andrew Ross Sorkin, the famed New York Times business journalist, again. It was a little bit of like a party trick. I don't think that everybody appreciated what it was in the very beginning. Mapping your personal genome could help you figure out sort of trivial things, like your propensity for having freckles or if you're a slow caffeine metabolizer. But you could also figure out really important stuff, like your likelihood of developing throat cancer or the chances of having pregnancy complications. Now, whether you'd want to know these things or be told them without a doctor guiding you through it is a whole other question. But Anne wasn't worried about that. She decided there was a business here. So in 2006, alongside co-founder Linda Avey, she founded 23andMe. One word a direct report would use to describe you. Unconventional? I don't know. We haven't gotten that answer before. It is an unconventional answer. I like it. One of my direct reports, who's always like, I've never seen someone change so many dirty diapers during a meeting. <laughs> 23andMe was named after the 23 pairs of chromosomes in a human cell. And in 2007, the company launched their first product. This test that would skim your cell's DNA to give you information about your health and ancestry was available for the low, low price of $999. Today, only a few of us can afford to decode our entire genome, but there are a handful of companies that offer partial genome scans. They focus on the genes that are linked to certain diseases, and they also can track your ancestors. One company that leads the field is 23andMe. Joining me now, the founders, Ann Wojcicki and Linda Avey. What 23andMe is really hoping to do is say, let's, let's get Charlie Rose to sign up, spit, and let's follow you over your life. The way the test worked was with spit. A lot of spit. Picture this. It's fall, 2008, New York Fashion Week. You're at a party in Chelsea, and rock music is blasting. Celebrities are milling about. Everyone's in cocktail dresses and suits, sipping martinis. And then you see someone in the middle of it all, spitting into a test tube. This is our ancestry service. Yep, this is a spit party. 23andMe is trying to turn genetic testing into an event. And they weren't only at Fashion Week. They were also at more techie gatherings, like Davos. Yes, that's right. Anne went back to Davos, this time as the founder of 23andMe, not just Sergey's wife. And you can bet that she probably had a badge with a blue stripe. There was a place in a hotel, I want to say it was the Hotel Belvedere, maybe. And you would go up at a table and sign up and spit into the thing. Andrew Ross Sorkin did spit into a tube at one of these parties at Davos. 
I wanted to do it at one point, and there was a huge line. It was a queue, as they would say in Britain, uh, to to spit. <laughs> and so then I actually didn't do it then, and I actually went much later in the night one night when there was basically no line. It was like beta. It was a little bit like you were being invited behind some kind of like red carpet. You sort of thought you were on the cusp of something, of doing something really cool. And it was really interesting. And everybody was very happy to spit into these things uh, and get their information. I remember when all this was happening, though I didn't do it myself. There was just a certain buzz about it around town. Here's what Owen Thomas, a journalist who has covered the company, has to say about those parties. It was trying to demystify this idea of DNA testing and say, oh, it's, a, it's as easy as spitting into a test tube. Mm-hmm. It was part of the mystique, the novelty, the thrill. And like the idea that like these spit parties are happening at places like the World Economic Forum kind of added to the prestige and mystique of 23andMe. I remember it was like on the cover of the Sunday style section. This is what the stylish people are doing. (laughs) Spitting into tubes. Everybody's spitting into a tube, aren't you? Yeah. You know who was into the spit party? Google. That's coming up after the break. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous true spies from spyscape studios wherever you get your podcasts this is infamous from campside media so there was something fascinating about the dna of 23andme google had invested 3.9 million dollars in the company Like, frankly, what people were interested in about 23andMe was not the technology, not the promise of DNA testing. It was aligned to Sergey Brin. Owen was writing for Valleywag, Gawker's Silicon Valley outlet. Like all good journalists, he traffics in information and is always trading tidbits. And for Owen, the fact that Google had invested in 23andMe was hot gossip. And like, Sergey's smart, and he's in, he's investing in this, so maybe we should take a look at it. And it's just very hard to separate the personal relationship from the 
technological or conceptual promise of, of 23andMe. And it's impossible these year, all these years later to wind back the clock and say, if 23andMe had been started by just this former healthcare analyst who didn't have a personal in with the Silicon Valley power structure, where would it be today? Like, you just can't, you can't run that simulation. Remember, Anne was still sort of thought of as just Sergey's wife at this point. So Google pumping money into 23andMe, it just seemed like a conflict of interest. The main thing that was eyebrow-raising here is, is this in Sergey's personal interest, or is this in the interest of the company to be backing this promising Kleiner Perkins investor? has this famous statement that, I, I don't know if he actually said it, it's always attributed to him, but the line is, no conflict, no interest. Meaning, in order to be interested in a company, in this case, interested enough to heavily invest in its success, then it's probably for a personal reason that conflicts with the corporate one. It got a little murky at the time, and there were a lot of questions around whether that was all done by the book. And, and, and the answer is it wasn't done by the book because Google was writing the book as, as they went. It's worth noting that Eric Schmidt, then the CEO of Google, would later tell the New York Times that Google's investment in 23andMe was all done by the book beyond belief. But the truth was that Sergey did have a personal interest in 23andMe, and not just because his wife started it. You see, Sergey had probably taken one of those 23andMe spit tests. Maybe he sent off the test tube to be analyzed, and he found out something really important. Here's Anne talking about it. He already knew that he had a family history of Parkinson's disease, and now he knows that there is a genetic basis for it and that he carries that genetic basis for it. Sergey learned he carried a rare genetic mutation that put people at high risk for Parkinson's, a disease that impacts your brain and is most visible via body tremors. His mother had it too. With 23andMe, he found out that both he and his mother shared the same genetic mutation. Now, this was life-altering news, and Sergey was finding out about it from his wife's company, not a doctor. The research suggested Sergey had between a 20 and 80% chance of developing Parkinson's. So Sergey went all in. He got really into exercise. He changed his diet. He started drinking more caffeine. And this is how Sergey's life-shattering news became a corporate talking point for 23andMe. He has gone through a lot of the literature. One of the things that he's found is that it's not that well studied just yet because it was a relatively recent discovery. Um, but there is information there about things you can do to prevent Parkinson's. So that could be changing your diet, exercising more, and potentially drinking coffee. Um, and those are all three things that he does. And, and again, going to the critics, all three of those things are great for his health regardless. So he has lost weight. He is much more vigilant about um, you know, eating vegetables. And he is trying to drink a little bit of coffee. I'm happy because he made a lifestyle change that fundamentally made him healthier. She sounds pretty nonchalant. But Parkinson's is a serious possible diagnosis. If someone knocked on your door right now and said, hey, you've got to, you potentially have 10 years to live, um, 
I'm sure you wouldn't just be like, oh, cool, thanks, and close the door and continue recording this podcast. You'd be like, wait, what am I What am I going to do differently with the next 10 years? And so I'm sure that it did have an impact on him. It's the kind of news that doesn't discriminate between rich or poor, famous or totally unknown. The kind of news that takes even the people who are untouchable and just socks them in the stomach. And the one thing I'm still stunned by is that even though it seems like Anne and Sergey maximized the PR potential of the Parkinson's information, it was thanks to Anne's company, I think, that Sergey deepened his understanding of the disease. Like, if you were being dramatic, you could say her company potentially saved or at least changed his life. This was the kind of news that you would think would make a multi-billionaire quit his job and just spend the rest of his days as a healthy man with his wife and kids. Maybe take them around the world in his yacht or something. And every morning he'd wake up, turn to his wife and say, thank you. Thank you so much for getting involved in the kind of testing that could save other people's lives. Well, that's not what happened. They this great anecdote where a friend went to a meeting with Sergey and Larry and there were so many boxes and gadgets and things in their office. He said it looked like a catalog, electronics catalog had exploded and come to real life in the office. With all his intellect and all his wealth, like many leaders in Silicon Valley, Sergey was dreaming about things that were literally out of this world. Space travel, robots who will become our friends, I mean, Paul Allen from Microsoft was investing $200 million on a superplane. Elon Musk was talking about the Hyperloop, that high-speed railway in a tube. So Sergey threw his energy into a super-secretive project. It was called Google X. Google X was located in some nondescript buildings near the Googleplex campus. Nobody knew what happened inside not even most people working at Google. So they have all this money and they decide, they come up with this idea to build this secret lab called the Google X Lab. Let's create this top secret facility. No Google employees will know about it. No one will be able to get in. Around this time, Nick Bilton was reporting on Google for the New York Times. He kept hearing about Google X, but he couldn't figure out what was going on in there. All of his sources at the company kept telling him, we just don't know. But Nick eventually got the scoop. The idea was, let's create a list of 100 things that we, they're, they're going to call moonshots. And, and these moonshots were just like pie-in-the-sky ideas that, that some of them, they didn't even think were going to be possible. They were exploring building driverless cars. And this is at a time when we didn't have necessarily driverless cars or even the first iterations of them. They were talking about robots that could walk across the planet and create maps of America and the world and so on. They were talking about building a space elevator. So what is a space elevator? It's like a escalator that just drops you on the moon or What do you mean you don't know what a space elevator is? I mean come on. Like literally an elevator that could go to space. Most of these projects were never going to happen. I mean an elevator to the moon? Come on. Talk about moonshot. That's the stuff of sci-fi fantasy. But Sergey became fixated on something that was much less of a bombastic fantasy, but still a fantasy. It's called Google Glass. 
One of the things they talked about, which Sergey really, really was excited about, was a pair of glasses or contact lenses where you could you didn't need a cell phone anymore, uh, and you could essentially just walk around with these glasses on and this contact lens in, and that would be the way you would interface with the world. In addition to uh, potentially socially isolating yourself when you're you know out and about looking at your phone, it's kind of uh, you know is this what you're meant to do with your body? You're just like rubbing this uh, featureless piece of glass. So when we developed glass, we thought really about, can we make something that frees your hands? You could take pictures and you could record video and you'd never forget a memory and, and you would never have to look away from someone ever again. And that was essentially what became Google Glass. You probably remember Google Glass. They were a pair of smart glasses that acted like a smartphone, one that you wouldn't have to fish out of your pocket. Weight glass up by gently tilting your head back. You could use it to get calendar notifications, to check the weather, to send and receive photos and messages. Tap on a photo to share it and choose one of your friends. They look super nerdy. They're the pocket protector of glasses. Like, picture a nerd in your head. He's wearing ugly glasses, right? Now picture a nerd superhero whose glasses contain his superpower. That's what Google Glass looks like. Which is why it was so funny that Google Glass was Sergey's first big project. It was as if he was like, let's make the whole world look like super nerds. They, they look like if you, if you were like on set at Star Trek, you'd be like, oh, they forgot. They didn't finish the prototype fake glasses that they're going to use in this episode. They, they're like half done. That's what they look like. That's Nick again. When Nick's exclusive story about Google X came out in the New York Times, Google Glass was not ready to be rolled out. The glasses were super clunky, about 10 pounds, and had to be mounted to your head like some sort of orthodontic headgear. Sergey is spending all of his time at the Google X Labs. For the first time in years, he's in the office every single day. Uh, he's working on all these things. And there, you know, there are 99 other projects, but Sergey is obsessed with the Google Glass project because he thinks it's going to change everything. It's been really important to make it comfortable. Uh, so our first prototypes we built were huge. Like, it was like cell phones strapped to your head. It was very heavy, um, pretty uncomfortable. Um, we had to keep it secret from our industrial designer until she actually accepted the job, and then she almost ran away uh, screaming. But we've come a long way. And the other really unexpected surprise was the camera. Our original prototypes didn't have cameras at all, uh, but it's been really magical to be able to capture moments uh, spent with my family, my kids. I just never would have dug out a camera or a phone or something else to take that moment. I had been invited with just a small handful of journalists to a secret room near the Moscone Center, and, and I was there with just a small handful of other people, and no one else was allowed in. It was like security guards out front. He gives a, like a demo. It's very impromptu. He, he answers a bunch of questions, and then he gets a little excited. He can't, he can't stop himself from once he gets excited about something. And he, he's, he starts going around. He's, he comes over, and he's like, you guys want to try them on? You want to see them? And I was like, sure. And so I, I put, his, put Sergei's glasses on. And I'm like playing with them and like, he's like, say this and you can do a Google search and say that. Had I pressed something wrong, uh, God knows what I would have seen. It's totally wild. But, you know, he gave me his glasses to wear. Sergey was growing restless to share Google Glass with the world. And he was also growing restless 
in his marriage. Because while he was working on Google Glass, he was secretly having an affair with somebody in the office. Somebody who was pivotal to the Google Glass project. Next time on Infamous. We're all rooting for you. Uh, what do you guys think? Should they go for it? All right. Oh, San Francisco! As Google CEO, he was the only candidate who went to Burning Man. He was clearly going through some sort of crisis. Anne's attitude was better to beg forgiveness than, than to ask permission. It was an atom bomb in Silicon Valley when it, when it all came out. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.